Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There was a lawyer who had a bunch of people who were mentioned in a particular will in his office. And he read the will off and it read this way. To you, my loving wife Rose, who stood by me in rough times, as well as good, I leave you the house and $2 million. Must be rough for Rose, right? The lawyer continued, to my daughter Jessica, who looked after me in sickness and kept the business going, I leave you the yacht and the business and a million dollars. The lawyer concluded, and to my cousin Dan, who hated me, who argued with me, who thought that I would never mention him in my will, well, you were wrong. Hi, Dan. There you go. Who is in the inheritance? That's what Galatians chapter 3 and our text today is going to wrap that up is about. That's the question. And Paul is writing and it's as if he wants to get this message clearly to the people he's writing to. Who gets the inheritance? Do it with me. Oh, dear idiots, you do. You get the inheritance. Uh, repeat after me. This is going to be a declaration that we make uh, throughout the sermon. I am not a slave, but a son. And since I'm a son, I'm also an heir. The central idea in chapter 3 that we've covered over a few weeks here is that Abraham gets a blessing from God and it's the blessing of Abraham that would be passed down to his offspring. And so the question behind all of chapter 3 is who is in the will? Who is in the inheritance? Who are considered sons of Abraham? Now, uh, let's pull back and let's remind ourselves about the book of Galatians. Paul went to this area called Galatia. He established a bunch of churches and in those churches he preached the gospel. And then he went and established other churches. And in the meantime, teachers came in to Galatia and they started teaching these Galatian Christians something that was contrary to what Paul had said. They came in and they said, hey, yeah, we love Paul and we like this Jesus guy. You surely have to know Jesus, but you also need to obey the law, meaning the Old Testament law. You need to obey the Jewish dietary customs and laws and days and Sabbaths and all of that good stuff, especially being circumcised. And if you do that, then you'll be written into the inheritance. You will be a son of Abraham. You'll be saved. The gospel that Paul preached was a little bit different. 
Actually, it was light years different. Paul said, I want you to know Jesus. And knowing Jesus means that you're a son of Abraham, that you're saved. And that will in turn lead you to obey the law. Those are worlds different. The teacher's uh, equation could be this. Faith plus obedience equals salvation. But the gospel, Paul's equation is this. Faith plus salvation equals obedience. And so in chapters 3 and 4, Paul is trying to attempt to pull these Galatian Christians away from the ideas of the teachers that, that they've taken hold of. And Paul calls them foolish. He uses really harsh language. It means mindless. Uh, we have been framing it up, oh dear idiots, right? Because something, he says, has bewitched you. And Paul uses a term from the realm of magic and superstition because it was a popular belief in that day that there was some sort of magical evil eye that could cast some sort of spell on people and make them act strangely. Of course, Paul doesn't believe in this superstition or buy into it. But it's as if he's, he's being facetious and he's kind of saying, surely somebody had a magic wand and magically forced you to think this way. And the implication is pretty clear. Nobody in their right mind would adopt the teacher's theology. They'd have to be a fool. And with that umbrella, Paul gives several arguments and reasons why the teacher's way to be right before God and the way they've now adopted is the way of the idiot. And so one of those arguments that we kind of stumbled on last week was this idea of sonship. And in our text today, in chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, Paul expands on this idea of sonship. Who is in the will and who is not? Who is a son of Abraham? Now, sonship is a very important uh, concept. In the Old Testament, only sons could inherit family assets and wealth and land, only sons. If there weren't any sons in the picture, then there were provisions that some daughters, if there, were, uh, if there was a daughter or two, then they could inherit uh, property and land and wealth. If there was not a son and not a daughter, then amazingly, slaves could be given property. As a matter of fact, this is what Abraham himself is worried about in Genesis chapter 15. He, he realizes, I don't, have any, I don't have any sons, I don't have any daughters, I'm going to have to leave everything to Eliezer of Damascus. Now, Eliezer was pretty stoked about that, uh, but not Abraham, right? I need a son, and God says, I'm going to give you a son. And uh, he is going to inherit the blessing. Now, I, I need you to remember in all this sonship talk today, last week what we talked about in verse 26 of chapter 3, Paul purposefully uses the phrase, you are all, male and female, sons. You are all sons. That's not a slight against women. We covered that last week, but it's absolutely the opposite. This is Paul elevating the status of women because in Jewish tradition, you could only be blessed by God if you were circumcised, which guess what? Leaves out about half of you, right? Paul says, no, you are all sons of God. Even you women are sons of God. You can inherit property. You can inherit the blessing. And that's a status that's normally not given to women in Paul's day. And so the answer to who is in the will, who is the son, is a little unexpected. In chapter 3, in the very middle of it, Paul says, 
Abraham only has one son and heir, and it's Jesus Christ. Now, I have to back up a little because most of us grew up in uh, churches, and uh, if, if you're as old as I am, then you grew up kind of singing this song about Abraham having sons, right? Yes, Father Abraham had many sons, yes, and by the end, you're, you know, you're doing all of this, and yes, okay. We realize in chapter, chapter 3, man, we could have saved a lot of time in that song. Abraham only has one son. In verse 16 of chapter 3, he says, the seeds, the offspring that God says, I'm going to give the blessings to your offspring, the offspring isn't plural, it's singular. And that's his whole argument in chapter 3, that there's only one seed to whom the promise has been made. And the rest of us, get this, whether we're Jewish and we follow the law, whether we're Greek and we don't, whether we're slave or free or male or female, the rest of us left out. No inheritance for us. And so Abraham is loaded and he's leaving all of the blessings of God, all the stuff that God wants to give all of us, he's leaving it to the Son, and the Son is Jesus, and Jesus gets it all. But the gospel message is better than good because the gospel says we're not left out after all. The good news is that even though Christ is the only true Son and heir, we can be in Christ. That's what verses, verse 14 of chapter 3 says. We can be united with Christ. We are clothed with Christ in our baptism. That's verse 27 of chapter 3. And if we are in Christ, then we can be counted as part of Christ himself, therefore a son and therefore an heir. And that's the main point of what we talked about last week. Jesus is the only natural son, but the rest of us can be written into the inheritance and into the will by adoption. We can be sons by adoption. And our text today, verses 1 to 7 of chapter 4, is Paul's expansion on this idea that we are sons of God through faith. And to illustrate, Paul says, I want you to think about this. I want you to think of a young child who is the heir of a great estate. And I want you to think about that young child because he has people over him. He has guardians and trustees and people that are telling him what to do. And if you think about it, It's a great estate, there are probably slaves in the mix, and that child is really no different than a slave. But when he comes of age, when he comes into his inheritance, oh, that's a different story. So in ancient times, the process of coming of age was an important and well-defined process. A Roman child heir was a minor under his guardians and trustees until he was about, uh, until he was 14, but then even, even until he was about 25, he still was under some degree of guardianship. He never fully came into his sonship until he was 25. And so not until then could he exercise complete or independent control over the estate, okay? And so when Paul says, the child is no different than a slave, Paul could mean several different things, but I think the point is that we all naturally gravitate to slavery. Slavery is our natural state. And so whether you are the Galatian Christians who are being enslaved by the law, or whether you are like most human beings on the planet and you are enslaved by things 
of the earth, money and power and sex and food and pleasure and all of those things that we could throw in there, or whether you are within a church walls and you are a Christian, Christians are in danger of being enslaved by the thinking that we have to keep proving ourselves for God to continue to like us, and we enslave ourselves that way. But slavery is this constant pull. But sonship, Paul wants to, this is the message, sonship is the new position. Paul wants us to camp out a little bit here and and understand what's wrapped up in this concept of sonship. So no matter where we start, maybe, maybe we're the child, maybe we're the slave, neither one have any claim on the inheritance yet. They're both in the same boat. He wants us, no matter where we start, to move to the place of the son who is of age, who has come into his inheritance. And that's a place, this is good news for us, that even slaves can get to. And so let's carve it up this way today, how sonship is one, how sonship is experienced, and how sonship can be practiced. Repeat after me, I am not a slave, but a son. And since I'm a son, I'm also an heir. How sonship is one. Look at verse 4. When the time had fully come, some of your translations say, in the fullness of time, God did something. He sent his son. Historically, for whatever reason, the right time for Jesus to come was what we would label the first century. And what is emphasized in these verses is the one that God sent was uniquely qualified to do a couple things. Number one, Jesus was uniquely qualified to redeem us. This is verse 5. He was God's son. He was also born of a human mother, so that means he was human as well as divine. He was the one and only God-man. He was born under the law. That is, he's born to a Jewish mother into a Jewish nation that's subject to a Jewish law. He's born under law. And so throughout his life, he is submitted, he, he has to submit to all the requirements of the law. But where others have failed, he succeeds. He perfectly fulfills the righteous requirements of the law. And so the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ and the righteousness of Christ all come together to uniquely qualify him to be man's redeemer. John Stott says, it's way, says it way more simply than I ever could. He says it this way, if he had not been man, he could not have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them sons of God. He is uniquely qualified to redeem us. This is a word that Paul's used before in chapter 3, verse 13, where he redeemed us from the curse of the law. It means that he delivered us from it, that he bought us out of our curse, and that's what the word redeem means. In Paul's day, a slave could actually be bought and given his freedom. A slave could be redeemed from their slavery if somebody stepped up and paid the full price to the owner of the slave. And Jesus has done this for us. We are enslaved by the law, right? The law holds us captive. It forces us to do things that we cannot possibly do. We will never be able to measure up to the law. But Jesus comes and he, pull, he, he pays the full price to the law. He fulfills the law's demands on us completely. He removes the penalty that we owe, the debt that we owe for not being able to keep the law and is therefore able to free us from it. And so he's uniquely qualified to redeem us. Secondly, he's uniquely qualified 
to make us adoptable. To make us adoptable. This is the second half of verse 5. He wins for us full rights as sons. That's what the NIV says. Or He redeems us so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's what the ESV says. The, literally, the Greek reads this way, that through Christ we receive sonship. And that is a legal term from the Greco-Roman world. If a man was childless, like we had kind of hinted at before, but he had some wealth, maybe he has a vast estate, he has something to leave. One of the things, if there's no son, if there's no daughter, one of the things, probably the only option he would be left with was to take a slave and adopt that slave as a son. And when that legal process had been finished, at the moment of that slave's adoption, he not only ceased to be a slave, but he also received the full legal and financial privileges that a natural-born son would receive. And so inside this, the estate, he's no longer a slave, he's a son. Outside of the estate, he's no longer a slave, he's a son. And that's amazing that someone who is born a slave with no natural relationship to the owner of the state other than do this, go here, now receives legal status as a son, and that's an incredible life of new privilege. E.B. Hill is one of uh, the preachers that I love to listen to and read, and I was reading one of his sermons this last week, and um, he pointed out that in the cultural system of Paul's day, that a parent could always disown a natural-born child. Now, be honest, parents. There are some of you who have wanted to disown a natural-born child. Right, And we kind of have the attitude sometimes, that's all right, I'll just make another one that looks like, just like you, right? It's no problem. But E.B. Hill points out that in Paul's day, if you adopted a child, you were not allowed to disown them. You could never do that with an adopted child because there's been a legal process that you've gone through that cannot be reversed. Once adopted always adopted. And this slave adoption is the remarkable metaphor that that Paul gives for us here for what Jesus has given us. We were slaves. We had no hope. We had no way out, no future. But we were adopted. And now we're sons. And so we don't live in the slave quarters anymore. We live in the house. We live in the palace. And that new status that we have can never be taken away from us because Jesus has gone through the legal process of adopting us as sons. Jesus is the only natural son. He was uniquely qualified to redeem us from law and made it possible for the rest of us to experience true sonship by adoption. Repeat it again with me. I am not a slave, but a son. And since I'm a son, I'm also an heir. And it's important that we keep those concepts together, the the concept of being redeemed but also being adopted. Because when we put them together, when we keep them hand in hand, we begin to get the complete picture of what Christ has done for us and what it means to, to be sons and to have sonship. It's important to not isolate these ideas because that's a common thing to do. Uh, if we were to ask the normal Christian out there, hey, what has Jesus done for you? the answer would invariably lean towards the redemption side of the equation, understandably. 
What has Jesus done for you? Well, he washed away my sins. He forgave my sins. He, he kind of put me in a new status between, you know, God and, and he wiped my slate clean. That, that kind of thing. Is that wrong? No. We absolutely need to underscore how Christ took our ugly, sinful lives and made us pure and holy and righteous. But the problem is that we tend to stop there. And that's only one side of the gospel. So the he took my sins part, the redemption part, usually greatly overshadows the adoption part, that he gave me rights and privileges as a son. And so most of us think in terms of the first, but not the second. And when we do, there's a danger of what that might lead to. It might lead us to conclude that we are pardoned and we're forgiven, but since the slate is clean, now I need to live well and prove myself to maintain God's favor and earn his rewards. Paul wants to make clear here, not only did Christ remove the curse that we deserved, but he also gave us the blessing that he deserved. God's honor and reward are just as guaranteed to us as our adoption is. And probably a good picture for this would be to think of yourself uh, on death row in prison. Um, I don't know how you got there, if you want to flesh that backstory out, that's fine. Just don't tell me. I don't really care. But you're on death row, okay? No hope, bleak future, despair. And then I want you to imagine your life changing one day as Jesus comes in and he unlocks your cell and he, go, he swings that door open and he says, you're free to go. You're free. It's as if you never committed the crime that you know you're guilty of. So you're free. Now, that's a correct picture of the gospel, but that's only the redemption part, right? If the gospel just lets us out of prison and frees us from death row, then from then on, we're on our own, and we make our own way, and we have no choice but to lean on our own efforts to make anything of ourselves, and hopefully that means no more crime for you. Again, I don't know what your backstory is, but hopefully you'll live well and not be thrown back into prison. But that's only half the gospel. That's not where the gospel leaves us. The other side of the gospel is that according to the gospel, after we are released from prison, after we are released from death row, we are immediately taken to the White House. And the press is there. And the president is there. But it's Jesus who steps forward to the podium because he's much more tweetable than the president. And he begins to say something amazing about somebody in the room. This special person has done so much. He's, he or she is healed. They, they've served. They've sacrificed. They've given their very life for others. And you wonder who he's talking about. And then he turns to you. And he says, for all of these amazing attributes and accomplishments that you know aren't yours, here's your reward. And he hangs the Congressional Medal of Honor around your neck. And from then on, you are received and welcomed everywhere you go as a hero, as a, as a son of the country, right? As if you accomplish those extraordinary deeds yourself. That's the adoption part. And the place that this matters, that we have to pull these two things together, is when we fail. If we don't pull these two things together when we fail, then we will let Jesus down and act as a slave, even though we're sons, and, and we will do that, right? 
But if we pull these things together, we will be able to remember and we will be able to determine our future. If we only remember redemption, then we'll be thankful that the slate is wiped clean. But ultimately, we will despair because we know that we have to fill that blank slate with good stuff. And that's hard to do. We never measure up. But if we remember the second part too, that we're adopted, that we're fully legally sons with all the privileges because Christ has not only cleared the slate, but He's also written His good, righteous deeds onto it. And now we recognize the hope we have. We recognize the gift we have, that we are accepted, we are seen as sons with all the rights and privileges even when we fall. And when we hold those two things together, the pressure to perform fades away. Our inheritance is not a prize to be won. It's a gift of Christ. Quickly, how sonship is experienced. Here's number two. And this is verse six. Verse four says God sent his son. Verse six says God sent the Spirit. And the Son will give us an objective legal condition of being right with God, but the Spirit is, is the, the part of the Trinity that's going to give us a radically subjective experience. The Spirit is the way we experience sonship. And we're not talking about um, speaking in tongues or snake handling or jumping over pews, that kind of thing. It's very reasonable and, and very simple. If we want to experience sonship, of God, then a picture will help. The experience of sonship looks like a child being engulfed by the love of his father. It is a child who is on the shoulders of his father, and his father's skipping down the sidewalk, and the child's bouncing and just giggling the whole way. It is a little girl who's in the park being swung by her dad. It is a child being read to before bed at night by his or her parents. That's the right picture. That's the way we are to experience sonship. That's the relationship that Paul and Jesus wants us to have with God himself through the Spirit. That's possible. And Paul gives us uh, some markers. He uses this phrase that God sent his Spirit into his son, uh, of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, the Spirit leads us to cry out, Abba, Father. And there's some questions that we can ask ourselves to make sure that we're on track with this. Uh, Number one, can you turn to God as a good father? Number two, can you speak to God as a trusted father? Number three, do you feel nearness to God as a dependable father? And number four, do you have confidence in God as a loving father? And those things, if we ask them to ourselves, can be markers that tell us if we're really experiencing God as sons. The encouragement to live experientially as sons couldn't be more strong here. Paul says that the Spirit leads us to cry out, Abba, Father. And that word, Abba, is... Uh, Greek, uh, an Aramaic word. It just means Papa or Daddy. But the point is that it's Aramaic. Here in the middle of a letter written to Greek people who have no understanding of Aramaic, here is this Aramaic word. Why in the world is it here? The answer is, it's here because that's the way Jesus talked to His Father. That's the way the Son prayed to His 
Father. And the implication by Paul is that we get to use that language too because our dad kind of owns the place. Jesus could talk that way because his dad really did own the place, right? Some of us, eh, we, want, we need to be a little more formal. Jesus, and Paul says, no, no, no. Pray exactly the way Jesus did. He has earned that right for you, that you can approach God like his perfect son did and experience sonship in that way. I am not a slave, but a son. And since I'm a son, I'm also an heir. How sonship is practiced. Number one, study the son and speak to the father. There's a close connection of verse 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, and, and what it means is that we, we should put study into our prayers and prayers into our study. A lot of us, uh, you know, there's probably, um, there's probably one main thing that, that we get in relationship to prayer, and that is people saying, I just don't know what to pray. The reason you don't know what to pray is because you haven't studied the sun. When you study the sun, you'll be able to more and more each day speak to the Father. I want you to think about it this way. Think about the slave who suddenly becomes a full son. Like that. In an instant. Which is exactly what happens at our baptism. We are instantly full sons, right? God, uh, Jesus has given us that position in God's eyes. But experientially, it's going to take a while. Experientially, that slave, every morning, when he wakes up, not in the slave quarters, but in the son's bedroom. And every morning, he has to remind himself, hey, I, I get to wear a robe, and I can walk out on the balcony, and I can see the entire estate, and I actually get to make some decisions about this thing. And he has to remind himself daily that he's a son. And the language that he uses, the way he acts, the confidence that he has will change over time. It's not, it's not overnight, but words of trust and closeness and boldness and confidence will continue to come as he understands he is a son, right? And so we need to study the son so that we can speak to the father. Number two, step with the spirit and cry out every day. Pay attention to how uh, little kids act towards their parents. This is a good uh, picture for you. How do they cry out to their parents and imitate that when it comes to God? Uh, here's a good que uh, question um, that you might have other people ask of you. Am I acting like a slave who is afraid of the master or am I acting like a child who is immensely secure and assured of my father's love? Ask that to somebody and say, would you evaluate me? Am I acting like a slave who's afraid or am I acting like a child who is loved? Number three, I want you to see the singular and this is a daily declaration of sonship. It needs ex explanation, but it's exactly what we've been doing this whole sermon. It's a declaration that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir. And I want you to understand, I'm not just implanting from the outside world some self-help advice into the text. I need you to see that in this section of text, Paul does something here. And it absolutely drives this point home. Paul speaks all through the text that you collectively are sons. He says we collectively were slaves. He says those people collectively were under the law. He says our hearts, all of our hearts collectively. 
He's talking to the crowd. The grammar is always plural until he gets to verse 7. And the you in verse 7 is no longer the crowd. It's no longer plural. It's singular. You, Rhonda, are not a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, you're also an heir. You, Willie, are not a slave, but a son. And since you're a son, you're also an heir. Tommy, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, you're also an heir. And so what I want to do to, uh, we're going to end with a little video today. But before we do that, I want to, to make this declaration like we've been doing. But this time I want you to insert your name in that blank. Because that's what Paul's asking us to do. To remind ourselves daily that we are not slaves. We are sons. And so this will be a little hectic. You scream out your own name when we come to the blank. I'll count it off. Okay, here we go. One, two, three. Dusty is a slave, but not a son. And since Dusty is a son, Dusty is also an heir. One more time. One, two, three. My favorite quote of all time was our furnace repair man comes into the house, stops dead in his tracks, and says, this looks like some kind of United Nations meeting. I was born in Bangkok. Bangalore, India. Connecticut. And I was born in Romania. Ethiopia. Which is in Africa. In China. <laughs> Sharon is the gas pedal and I am the brakes, over and over she'll say, I found this child who needs X and Y and Z, and all we'd have to do is fly over the ocean, get funding, connect this dot to here, and it'd be done. We're such victims of our culture because our culture tells us your kids have to look perfect and be in all the perfect schools, and you can't do that with a big family, but if you just concentrate on what's important, the rest will follow. People discouraged us. They thought we were going to ruin our lives by taking all these special kids, and they said, you don't know what to do. And it's true that we had no experience, and we didn't really know how to raise them. But you, you see what happens with unconditional love. You give a person unconditional love, and they, they blossom. I feel like having these kids has really helped us find our life, find our meaning, find our purpose. It took me decades to figure this out, but there's no physical thing that you can buy that's actually going to give you true peace and happiness. 
and the pure joy that will come from a, a rescue and a ransom of a child's life is probably the most satisfying thing you can imagine. We talk about adoption. We tell them they're adopted and we kind of tell them, you know, being born into a family, you don't even decide that. It kind of happens biologically, but when you're adopted, your parents looked out at the whole world and picked you. You think that they don't really know the gravity of them being rescued or saved. Then you'll see them in an external setting, like one of them is in front of 300 people last Friday night, and he tells people that he probably wouldn't be alive if he hadn't been adopted by his family. Those are like the goosebump moments when you go, He's got it. at the time when I was born, um, when, you were, when you were born with a, a deformity, quote, quote, it, um, it was considered a curse by God. I was um, kind of distanced and not treated right and kind of not really getting any care that a normal baby should, which is why when I was one and a half years old, I weighed nine pounds. It was rough in the, in the first year of my life, but I lived. But no matter where you were before, it's like where you can be now, your past doesn't define that. This family has proven that. It's just like you have a dying boy from Romania or starving kids from Africa, and you bring them to a, a place where they can be, I guess, human to the fullest, and that, that's, that's a generous generous thing. Family is everything. Family's fun. <laughs> Interesting. This family is just people you can be a fool around and they'll still love you. Awesome. No, should I do the Dennehy face? Family is something that I can count on. Family is adoption. I love that line. Your past is no longer defined by who you are when you're adopted, who you were when you're adopted. And it's that way with you and me. We are no longer defined by our past, by who we were, because Christ has come and made us a son.
He's made us adoptable. Because we're a son, we're also an heir. Father, we thank you for this message today that we are so loved that you would send a son to redeem us. But not only did you wipe the slate clean, but you gave us all of the inheritance that's going to the Son. That's an amazing thing to be in Christ. Help us to be found through faith in Him today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.